0: NCFM Today, a podcast about family medicine in the Old North State. This edition features an interview with Dr. Shannon Dowler, Chief Medical Officer for North Carolina Medicaid and the North Carolina Division of Health Benefits. Dr. Dowler has a long history of service and leadership in our state. Prior to joining Medicaid, she served as Chief of Community Medicine and Ambulatory Population Health for Mission Health Medical Associates in Asheville, where she helped lead quality, safety, and ambulatory population health strategy for mission's primary care practices across an 18-county region. Dr. Dowler is current president of the NCAFP Foundation Board of Trustees, is past president of the NCAFP, and is a past member of the American Academy of Family Physicians Commission on Health of the Public and Science. She received her medical degree from East Carolina University. Her undergraduate degree from Appalachian State University, and completed her family medicine residency training at Mayhek in Asheville. I'm your host, Greg Griggs. Dr. Dowler, welcome to our October podcast.
1: Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me on your podcast.
0: Oh, yeah. well, you know, first of all, Dr. Daller, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your journey to becoming a family physician leader?
1: Sure. So um, I'm a North Carolina native. I grew up in Greensboro and went went up the hill to Appalachian for college then across the state to ECU, now Brody School of Medicine, um, to, because family medicine was what I was, um, leaning towards even before I went to medical school. And then I crossed the state again to AHEC's family medicine residency program where I did residency and a fellowship year. Um, I, I thought I was gonna be a veterinarian for a lot of the time when I was in high school, my first job was mucking out cages when I was 13 years old, um, and I loved animals, um, but as I did internships and in undergrad, it became really clear to me that taking care of people, and particularly people who might not have access to care, was really going to be my calling.
0: I know you have always had that calling to help with the underserved. Talk about some of the roles that you have had you know, prior to where you are today, where you have really embraced that.
1: Yeah, so um, my kids accuse me of having job ADD. Um, so it's not just the millennials. Um, but I, I get, um, I get interested in things, and then I want to do the next thing. And so I've had a few different jobs in my career. Um, I came out of residency after my fellowship year in the health department in Buncombe County, where we did full scope family medicine, um, OB without deliveries. Um, but we would take them up to scheduling their inductions and getting the babies back, or scheduling their repeat C sections, and um, it it was great. I did that for several years. And then uh, I got to a point where my husband traveled internationally and I had two young children. And whenever he would leave the country, somebody would get sick or fall off a bunk bed and have to have a CT scan or something would happen. And so I actually switched over and did urgent care for a few years just to do shift work um, with Sisters of Mercy, which was a not-for-profit urgent care center. And that was a lot of fun. I still had residents rotate with me and and, um, got to enjoy teaching and learning more in orthopedics and procedures. Um, But one day I woke up and realized that, wait a second, I'm a medical director here. And that wasn't the plan. Um, I'm supposed to be taking care of underserved people. Um, for primary care, how did that happen? And that's when I left and went to Blue Ridge Community Health Services to be the chief medical officer. So federally qualified health center, Western North Carolina was going through a big turnaround, had had a very disruptive period of time and had been destabilized and was starting to, starting to come back. Um, and so I was there seven years, which is an all time record for me. And it's because it was constantly changing. We were adding new practices, adding more scopes, new dentists, integrated care, you know, bringing on psychiatrists. We were always doing something different there. Um, And that was the role I had up until when I uh, wanted to have a job in a health system so I could understand that world a little bit better. And then I spent three years at Mission before coming to Medicaid.
0: So how do these other roles kind of prepare you for such a big role in policy and advocacy in North Carolina? Uh, You know, it seems like a Pretty significant jump, and but yet I personally know how part of that prepared you. But tell our listeners how what you've done in the past prepared you to be at Medicaid.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is just having taken care of patients for 20 years, underserved patients, many with Medicaid or nothing, um, and understanding some of the barriers and challenges in the program. So I feel the pain of being a provider in the clinic um, and supervising a gazillion providers who are also suffering You know, with, with sometimes rules and regulations and administrative burden. And, you know, I'm, I've also been the one that after I put the kids to bed, sit up all night long doing my charts. And so I understand the pain points. I think that's important. I also understand the legislature at at the, and really at the, federal government level as well because of my advocacy work. I got really involved with advocacy when I was president of the Academy. And then for years after, um, you can tell them stories about me being on a choke chain if you want, Greg, but Greg taught me how to be more diplomatic during that time. Um, but, but it's sort of a, when I look at it now, all of my jobs really prepared me for this role at Medicaid, being over the ambulatory quality, you know, for a health system. so it was just it was primary care and specialty practices. It was the whole ambulatory um, milieu. and, I learned a lot doing that. And so, I, every every job I've had, I've accumulated a few more skills that I've taken with me to this Medicaid role.
0: Well, let's uh, go back and talk about advocacy just a little bit before we jump full into the Medicaid role. Uh, I, I would like to say that I, I helped you learn to be a better advocate by uh, putting you on that chain, so to speak, that you talk about. But, you know, why was it important for you to get involved in advocacy? You did, like you said, at the state and federal level through NCFP and AFP.
1: Um, yeah, it, it's for me, my passion for um, caring for the underserved and health equity. It was my driving force and in going into people medicine instead of animal medicine. And then also my driving force in becoming a family doctor, wanting to take care of everybody. And so I have that sort of burning Passion there for taking care of um, the broader population and writing injustices, and so advocacy is a great way to do that. And whether it's at the local level, I was quick to write letters to the editor of the paper, and um, you know, publish things wherever I could, whenever I could, um, or showing up at the on a White Coat Wednesday and and getting to know people and becoming friends with senators, and and um, going up to D.C. and talking to people that had different views from me and learning how to have broker conversations that are really in the best interest of the people that I want to try to help serve, um, you have to learn how to do that as an advocate without being an activist. Um, there's this fine line between the two. And I think as you mature in life, some people are naturally more lean towards advocacy versus activism. I definitely lean towards activism over advocacy. And so I've had to learn over time that you actually sometimes can get more done in a more um, moderate approach through advocacy.
0: So uh, tell us a story, a unique story of your advocacy, you know, obviously something that uh, won't violate any HIPAA violations or anything that we don't <laughs> want to say on a podcast, but sort of what's your you know, most vivid memory of your advocacy journey?
1: Well, Greg, you know, I'm going to have to tell the story of uh, being in D.C. with you. And uh, there are so many stories I could tell you. I mean, I've stepped in it several times, but... Um, we were up in d c, And it was the time of Obamacare. It was amazing. Like the world was amazing. I was in a federally qualified health center at the time. We were getting new funding. It was exciting. Um we, Medicaid was expanding everywhere. Um but in Western North Carolina, where I was, we were seeing um, the the small rural hospitals that th- threatening to close down because they didn't have the funding. And we were meeting with a prominent um, senator. Um, In D.C. and um, I made him very angry by disagreeing with him on a point around expansion. I was saying that it would help keep our 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 small hospitals open if we expanded Medicaid. And he used a bad word in front of a room full of people, didn't he, Greg?
0: Yes, he did. (laughs)
1: Uh, (laughs) So, so all the things Greg had taught me about not triggering people, I was actually behaving in that moment of time. But man, did I trigger that guy. Um, He quickly apologized for the expletive that he shouted out to the room and everyone looked very nervous. And there was a lot of nervous laughter. um, But. You notice I did not succeed in getting Medicaid expanded yet.
0: (laughs) Well, we're still working on that, and that is still an important issue for the Academy. Uh, That's a perfect segue into your role at Medicaid. And, you know, uh, people may not understand what the chief medical officer for Medicaid does. So tell us a little bit about your job and your responsibilities. Uh, we'll, We'll get into COVID in a minute, but so your job as you thought it was going to be when you uh, first entered more than your COVID role.
1: Okay. Yeah. So it's, um, it's interesting, you know, working for a payer as a payer um, is a totally different, you have to um, kind of reverse everything um, from the way you've experienced it as a provider in a clinic. And so being a family doctor for 20 years, um, I came in with a certain set of assumptions and beliefs. And then when you get behind the curtain and you understand why things happen, how completely complex our Medicaid program is from an authority standpoint and a financial standpoint is It's just unbelievably complicated. So a lot of my time is spent on clinical policy, advising the clinical policy team on how we might change our clinical policies to have a a more medically appropriate or more comprehensive basket of services. I spend a lot of time on appeals. So sometimes we have rules that providers say, I don't like your rule and I want to change. I want to challenge a rule or special exceptions um, for patients um, on getting drugs that they're not approved for and they want to sort of advocate for their patient. So I spend transplants. Um, so a lot of time on very nuanced patient specific things. And then also this huge broad picture of what do we cover for private duty nursing? And, and why do we cover someone on a ventilator, but not someone who's a quadriplegic and, you know, understanding how we got to where we are today and, and trying to figure out how to manipulate the system to best care for the people in North Carolina. And frankly, to keep the, the doctors across North Carolina, eager to take care of Medicaid patients. Because at the end of the day, um, we're nowhere if we don't have great doctors being medical homes for our Medicaid beneficiaries. And so we've got to keep the program good for them.
0: You've been at Medicaid a little bit over a year now. Is that correct? You came. That is correct.
1: Over a year. I. Um, uh, by the way, you lost that bet. No, I,
0: I think I said 18 months was the over under on it. So uh, <laughs> we. Uh, a lot of us like to joke with uh, how long Dr. Dallar could stay uh, in a advocate role versus the activist role, uh, uh while being a state government employee, which is a different animal altogether, so uh, yeah. But but you you've done a great job, uh, and uh, so I, I think you're going to prove us all wrong uh, that you you have,
1: I hope so. But you no, know, but if it's eighteen months, I gotta I gotta hold it together a little longer. Right,
0: you you gotta keep <laughs> keep it up. So, uh, but uh, it, you know, coming in a year ago, you know, none of us last fall expected 2020 to be like it is. So, you know. How did COVID-19 change your role uh, at Medicaid and, and sort of what have you done exactly in relationship to COVID-19?
1: Yeah, so it is really interesting. So th- so as I was coming in, the first thing I had to do was learn managed care. Um, so I had to learn fee-for-service Medicaid and managed care Medicaid simultaneously, which is no easy task. They're both complicated. And then we didn't get a budget and managed care got postponed. And so it was like, oh, great. Big, deep breath that gives us some more time to really refine the program and improve some of the things in our existing Medicaid program. Q pandemic. Um, And so one of the things I had wanted to work on was telehealth and Ben Money and I'd set up a task force in December of last year. And um, we figured we had a three year process to get the authority and the dollars to really expand telehealth the way we wanted to. It became rapidly apparent in COVID that um, telehealth was gonna be one of our very first lines of defense um, for our practices to be able to stay engaged with their. And so um, I led the telehealth modernization work for Medicaid, which was rapid, rapid transformation. On average, it usually takes us nine months to land a new policy, and that's generous. Sometimes it's 18 months or 24 months because of the authority issues and the dollar issues. We were turning on five to ten new policies every week. Um, And so the team was working around the clock, um, literally um, Trying to, to land these things. And once um, I did that, I, so while that was happening, I started leading the telehealth work stream for all of DHHS and the COVID response. So met with payers, trying to get payers to line up and be um, agree on how they were covering things, or at least be transparent to the field on how they were covering things. So it wasn't a mystery every time a different patient tried to access care. Um, and then I started working on the historically marginalized populations and started leading a small group on that that has grown over time. And I got the privilege of leading an initiative called CHAMP, which was community testing and historically marginalized populations um, and, and really increased our testing around the state. So I did a lot on community testing. I went out to a lot of sites. I was at the poultry plant doing the first mass testing. Um, and so I, I got out of Medicaid a little bit and did some global state work, which was really a lot of fun.
0: I've just got to say, we all appreciate what you've done. You have done a phenomenal job. You know, I I say, you know, my joke is that nine-month process took nine days instead of nine months, and maybe even less than nine days because you were turning on things almost continuously. And I really think without that internal advocacy for telehealth and Medicaid, uh, not only would we have been in bad shape with the Medicaid population, but your external advocacy with other payers in the state, getting them to adopt telehealth very quickly and telehealth parity and to pivot so that family physicians and others could care for patients were uh, just exemplary work on your part. You
1: know, you know, the greatest irony of this, Greg, is I've been one of those sort of resistant adopters to technology and telehealth. So I've been one of the ones that's like, mm, is it really as good as having the patient in the room? You know, I've been sort of a, uh, I'm not opposed to it, but I don't love it. Um, and so having to suddenly have to carry the flag for it um, was tough. I mean, that was a real, I had, it really challenged me um, personally to To do what I thought was best in the moment, not necessarily what I had 20 years of experience worrying about, you know, and so I've been really gratified to hear how successful it's been for practices and our data that we're looking at is showing really good outcomes.
0: You know, I think really the key to telehealth, in my opinion, is that ongoing continuous relationship that family physicians and other primary care physicians have with their patients. And if you have that I think it makes telehealth work. If it's episodic and fragmented, that concerns me about telehealth. And, uh, Yeah. And I think
1: I agree. I agree. I think that medical home telehealth, broadly in the context of a behavioral health home or a medical home where you have a continuity of care with your specialty, your cardiologist you've seen for 15 years, like that is definitely a different experience than the sort of dial a doc that doesn't have access to your medicines or your past medical history or any of those things. I I still have more anxiety in that space.
0: you know, your next big thing now is we're uh, we're still dealing with a pandemic, but you're also now we have a start date for Medicaid managed care next July one. Just talk to our listeners a couple of minutes about what you feel like that's going to look like and your role in transforming Medicaid to managed care in North Carolina.
1: Yeah, so I think uh, one of the things that I'm I'm good at is communicating and creating environments for communication to happen. And bi-directional communication to me is really, really important. Um, Medicaid should not feel like a, back, a black box. If you have a suggestion for a policy change or I, I want you to be able to say that and because you're probably right. And so we're creating some very public facing buttons on our website where people can submit requests for policy changes, coverage changes in a much easier fashion than in the past where you kind of had to know somebody to know somebody to know somebody. Um, And that's going to be important in managed care. I've been working very closely with the CMOs of the PHPs over the last year that I've been in the role. Um, And I can tell you without a doubt that every one of them is a passionate primary care physician and gets it. And so that's wonderful to know that those are my colleagues, you know, in the trenches of trying to do this. I feel like our role in Medicaid is going to be around oversight and making sure that this goes very well, that our physicians around the state continue to want to take care of Medicaid beneficiaries. And, and that means being ready and responsive. And so we need to have, make sure it's, there are easy ways for providers to share challenges, not necessarily their worries of challenges. There's a real difference. if it, like There's a lot of noise right now of people, everything they're worried about. We can troubleshoot worries to some extent. But what we need to do now is build the engines for the oversight. So that when real things are happening, um, we're, we're not, I don't want us to get distracted by what ifs and worries right now. I, I want us to be building up so we're ready to go on day one. And so that's that sort of fine balance that I, that I struggle with. I, I am worried about contracting. I think there are different strategies out there and even some down to the practices or engaging in some gamemanship that um, I will say I don't think is in the best interest of the beneficiaries. Um, I understand from a business standpoint why people are doing it. They're distrustful and they're concerned. Um, But I I think for our beneficiaries, as much as providers can take every payer – the less chance of disruption and the less chance of their medical home getting fragmented. And um, and so I th- when I think about our vulnerable populations, I want it to be as easy as possible for them to access care. Um, we don't at Medicaid see the contract side, so we don't know what's happening between the payer and the Practice, which is a challenge sometimes, so it's harder for me to understand necessarily why decisions are being made the way they are. Um, but I just know we got good people, and and I'm sure they wouldn't make those decisions if it wasn't for their reasons.
0: And for those listeners out there who don't necessarily know the PHP language, that's uh, prepaid health plans. That is our managed care plans. That they're going to be five across the state of North Carolina starting next July 1st, but a lot to happen between now and July 1st. And as we get closer to that, Dr. Daller, we may want to have you back to talk a little more specifically about that uh, going forward. It, you know, in, in closing, I want to go back to your you know, advocacy and, and particularly, what would you tell a med student or a resident or a young physician about advocacy and policy and the importance of that? If you want to impart some knowledge to those Younger physicians who were you twenty years ago? What would you tell them?
1: Yeah, I would tell them um, two things. Then they're kind of conflicting. So the first is don't hold back. Um, Find that thing that you're passionate about. It may not be in medicine. It may be homelessness. It might be environment. You know, it's we can all be passionate about different things, and that be really important. But identify the thing you're passionate about and be active in it. And so be active in your community. Get on boards speak up at um, Beyond Panels or just show up at public hearings and um, get activated and don't be afraid um, to put your neck out there a little bit. On the other hand, so the flip side of that coin is um, recognize that as a physician, you are automatically a leader no matter where you are. So where you raise your hand or speak or anything, the fact that you're a physician means that you have a different kind of power in your words, um, when you're speaking to other people and, and you have to be careful with that power. And that's where that balance between being an activist and an advocate comes in because w- if you're too much of an activist, you will marginalize so many people. Um, and, and might even put yourself in jeopardy with your job, um, or with your school, because sometimes there are other things going on that you're not aware of. So I would say active moderation, be, be passionate, But also, um, be aware that you're not just anybody else speaking up about things. As a physician, you automatically are wearing a badge of leader and special, and so your voice is going to carry louder and longer.
0: I think that's a great comment to end our conversation on today, Dr. Daller. I I really appreciate your insight and your sharing. And again, uh, I'd like to bring you back in a few months to talk a little bit more, Uh, it has you know, been my pleasure to work with you for the 15 years I've been at the Academy and to see that growth, uh, see the growth in family medicine in North Carolina, uh, see my personal growth from learning from folks like you, and to see the growth of our family medicine leaders like yourself. And uh, we're so proud to have you as chief medical officer in Medicaid, Uh really affecting patients, not one at a time in your office, but affecting 2 million Medicaid recipients across North Carolina and how they receive care. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Dowler.
1: Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me on. Uh, and
0: listeners, please uh, stay on the lookout for the next edition of NCFM Today. We'll have another great guest like Dr. Dallar next month. Thanks for listening.